Well, we are looking at Ecclesiastes and the writer, the preacher, as he calls himself, is investigating verse 11, life under the sun. Life where God either doesn't exist or he plays no meaningful part in life. And the preacher has been relentless in pointing out the flaws of that worldview that it gives you no basis for working out what's right or wrong. It gives you no hope for the future and so no purpose for your life. And then we come to today's passage. And one commentator says of this passage, of all the passages in Ecclesiastes, this one is probably the most difficult to interpret and to preach. Hey, by the standards of Ecclesiastes, that is saying something. And yet, what I hope you're going to see is that the point that the preacher is making is very clear. When a whole society goes secular, no God and no eternity, you face two choices as to how to live, and both will have a radical impact on your life, whichever one you choose. Okay, so we are gonna look at four things. Firstly, the art of living. Secondly, the fragility of popularity. Thirdly, the deadly alternative. And fourthly, the direction to lean in. First point then, the art of living. Now, the Olympics are just one month away. But do you know what the motto of the Olympics is? Citius Altius Fortius, which means faster, higher, stronger. Ah, yes, says the preacher. But the fastest, the strongest and the jumpiest don't always win, do they? Life doesn't always work like that. Verse 11. I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favour to those with knowledge. In other words, going into the Olympics you might be a dead cert to win, but it doesn't mean you will. Or you can have the perfect resume for that new job, but it doesn't mean you're going to get it. And that person you're romantically interested in seems a great fit, but it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Why? Because, the preacher says, verse 11, time and chance happen to them all. Maybe you miss that crucial email because it mysteriously went into the junk folder. Or someone offers you something and you go, man, if only you'd called me yesterday. Maybe there's a hold up on the auto route, so you miss your flight and everything falls apart from there. Time and chance, the preacher says. And in a secular, under the sun, scientific, materialistic world, where there is no divine author of events, there's no one weaving the story of your life. Life is just a thing of random chance. The British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, 
was asked what it was that knocked governments off course. He replied, events, dear boy, events. But it's not just governments, is it? The preacher says, verse 12. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Not just governments. We all know what it is to be knocked off course by events, by stuff outside of our control. Maybe your company is taken over and suddenly your job is on the line. You receive a diagnosis that you dread. Someone in your lab has been making stuff up and it impacts on you. Events can come at you from out of the blue and they can profoundly alter your life. But like a net or a snare, they are unavoidable. They're inescapable. But I didn't ask for this to happen. You might say, sure, says the preacher, but it still happens. Sue and I have just finished a book called The Art of Dying. Not because we have any plans to do that just yet, but because a big part of dying well is first living well. But in a world where life can be seriously unpredictable, how do you learn the art of living well? Which worldview the preacher wants you to ask best equips you for life like that? An under the sun secular one, no God, no eternity, no point to life, life really is all just a thing of time and chance? Or an above the sun one, where God is in sovereign control of your life, of all events, Whereas Paul says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. Even takeovers and job applications and auto routes and romance. And to answer that, to answer which worldview will better equip you for life, the preacher wants you to consider two types of person. And the first is the wise man, verses 13 to 15. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Little city, few men, great king, great siege works. The outcome is certain, isn't it? Because the race is always to the swift and the battle to the strong, right? Wrong, says the preacher. But here, it is not time and chance that make the difference. It's wisdom. And there are times in life when maybe you feel under siege, maybe by events or circumstances of life, maybe by the direction of travel of society. And to come through those times, the preacher says, you need wisdom. But of course, in the Bible, wisdom 
it's never just an intellectual thing, is it? It's not that this poor but wise man was actually a secret expert in urban warfare. In the Bible, wisdom is less about your IQ and more about how you read and assess the world. And as we've seen before, the foundation of true wisdom is realizing that there is a world, a king above the sun. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So if you really want to be able to negotiate life with skill and learn the art of living, you start by acknowledging, hey, actually, I don't know. I'm not God, but God is. As Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian preacher said, the doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of our own ignorance. In fact, Proverbs pictures wisdom as a woman inviting you to come and dine with her. But why would you do that? Because you're hungry, because you know that you need help from outside of yourself if you're going to be wise. Well, if that's the case, Lady Wisdom says, come eat with me. The problem is, the preacher says, even humbling yourself under God, even trusting that he is in sovereign control of all things, even knowing that life is not a thing of time and chance, even helping others to see that like the poor but wise man did, does not guarantee you a win. Second point then, the fragility of popularity. Verses 15 and 16. No one remembered that poor man. The poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So you can read the world and people's problems right. You can even genuinely help them. But that doesn't mean they will thank you for it, or at least not for long. Because in a secular world, the, the kind of wisdom that fears God is not necessarily going to make you popular. But even so, the preacher says, verses 16 and 18, I say that wisdom is better than might. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. And intuitively, you just know that he's right, don't you? That to be on the side of right is better than might. Whether that's the ravings of a ruler who shouts everyone else down and ridicules them, or the majority or a vocal minority or military might, what is just and true should win the day, not might. Except, if your worldview can't tell you what is just and true, if it tells you that survival is for the fittest and the strongest, it is going to have a hard time telling you 
why might isn't better than right. But deep down, you know that the right should win. Absolutely, the preacher says. So which worldview better fits with what you already know to be true? A below the sun one, an under the sun one, or an above the sun one? The problem is that the unpopularity of that worldview, the unpopularity of a worldview that says there is a God and there are moral absolutes, the fact that God-fearing wisdom may not win you any friends can make the alternative attractive. Third point then, the deadly alternative. You see, Proverbs tells us that Lady Wisdom, she's not the only one inviting you over for dinner. Proverbs 9, 13 to 16. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive. She sits at the door of her house calling to those who pass by. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And just like Wisdom, in the Bible, folly, being a fool, is not about your intellect. Listen, you can have multiple degrees, you can have a whole alphabet of letters after your name, and you can still be a fool. Because the psalmist says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Which means, the way the Bible sees being a fool is about misreading life, the universe, and everything, and thinking this life is all there is. No moral absolutes, no final judgment. And sadly, today, to live like that will earn you more praise in the public square than wisdom. The problem is, the preacher says, there are five reasons why that is a bad idea. Firstly, folly is self-destructive. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honour. Now imagine a master perfumer who has designed this incredibly expensive face cream guaranteed to remove wrinkles and it smells of summer. But he leaves the lid off and flies get in and the next time he smells it, it smells like a cow pat in summer. And the preacher is saying, you can have spent your life building up your reputation, but drop your guard, follow through on a bad choice, live as if there is no God, and you can tear down everything you have built up. One stupid remark, one foolish Twitter comment, one moment of madness, and your reputation's gone. But folly will also lead you to treat others badly because you won't have a good reason not to. But if you do, in the end, it is you who ends up being harmed. Verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it. 
now. Unless you are from Northern Ireland, you probably haven't heard of Edwin Poots. Well, he is a politician who recently engineered the downfall of his party leader. And having brought her down, he won the election for her job, promising that unlike her, he would listen to the members of the party. Except just three weeks later, last week, he was ousted for having failed to listen to his party. Dig a pit for others, the preacher says, and you need to watch where you are walking. Treat your colleagues, your friends or your family badly. And that is how you will end up being treated. Because what goes around comes around. And verse 8, a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Now, in ancient Israel, burglars would break into houses by digging through the walls. Do that, the preacher says, and you might just find a snake on the other side. What does he mean? He means if you try and get ahead by taking from others what is theirs, like their stuff or credit for their work, you might just end up getting bitten. Okay, so firstly, folly is self-destructive. But secondly, folly is self-consuming. Verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favour, but the lips of a fool consume him. Now, what the preacher actually says is that a wise man's words are grace. His words impart grace to others, and as a result, grace comes back to him. But it doesn't quite work like that with a fool, does it? No God, and Jesus is just plain wrong when he says that we're all going to give an account for every word that we say, and I'm the judge of what is right and wrong. So if I want to tell someone what I think, I'm going to go right ahead and say it. The problem is... Say something stupid or offensive, and it just brings trouble down on your head. But also, say what you think, and what you say confirms you in what you think, doesn't it? Speak out your anger, or your bitterness, or your hatred, and it has this way of making you more fixed and more certain and more angry and more bitter. Verse 14. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. A fool can speak with great conviction, the preacher says, and he is sure that he is right. But in reality, he knows next to nothing about it. Why is that? Because when you take an under-the-sun approach to life, and there's no such thing as divine authority, it doesn't take much before you start thinking that you're the authority on life. And you begin to destroy yourself from the inside out. Okay, so... Folly is self-destructive and it is self-consuming. But thirdly, 
Folly leaves you directionless. Verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. And the city is your destination, isn't it? It's where you're heading, at least it is here. But the person who says that there is no God can't tell you where anything is heading except into the dust of non-existence. The problem is that if that's the case, why does anything matter? And if nothing matters, that is hardly a great motivation to work hard, is it? No, the preacher says, hard work is just a burden to a fool. Okay, so folly is self-destructive, it is self-consuming, it leaves you directionless, and fourthly, folly will infect the way you and others lead. Verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your prince's feast in the morning. And that word child doesn't just refer to someone who is young, but to someone who is immature, who's never grown up. And princes feasting in the morning is a picture of leaders who aren't just immature, they are self-indulgent. And when a nation or an organisation has leaders like that, it is bad news, the preacher says. Verses 5 to 7. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses, and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Now, the preacher is not saying the rich upper classes, they're the ones who should have the power. It's that the nobility were the ones who were educated and trained and raised for leadership and responsibility. But when a society thinks this life is all there is, so my in-group or my political view or my wealth is what counts, and there is no sense of one day I will give an account for how I lead, don't be surprised if you end up with a fool in charge who is making bad or unqualified appointments. And the problem is, get it wrong. Lead from the wrong worldview and it comes with a cost. Because fifthly, folly brings decay. Verse 18. Through sloth the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Now, on the one hand, that's metaphorical, isn't it? Assume an under the sun approach to life, no God, no moral absolutes, and there will inevitably be moral decay in society. But hey, this is also true literally, isn't it? Because when officials don't fear God, when there's no sense of giving an account at the end of your life, and life is about getting rich through backhand as if necessary, don't be surprised if the roads don't get fixed and projects mysteriously run millions over budget. 
So the preacher's saying, if folly is self-destructive and self-consuming and it leaves you directionless and it infects leadership and it brings decay, don't you want to pursue wisdom instead, even if it is unpopular? Next point, the direction to lean in. Now there is a quote that is attributed to Winston Churchill that he almost certainly never said, but it is still a great quote. If you're not a liberal at 20, you have no heart. But if you're not a conservative by the time you're 40, you have no brain. Well, the preacher says, chapter 10, verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. However, you may be sad or glad to hear that the preacher is not talking about political parties. He's not saying that the wise person will always vote UDC or Conservative or Republican and only a fool would vote Democrat. He's saying that what makes a wise person wise and a foolish person a fool is the direction that their heart is tilting in, the direction their heart is pointing in. What determines whether you will navigate life with skill, even if no one thanks you for it, or that you get consumed by folly, is what your heart is leaning into. And the heart of the wise man inclines to the right and the fool to the left, the preacher says. Because in the ancient world, the right hand was symbolic of authority and saving power. It was symbolic of protection and of blessing. And the heir to the throne sat at the king's right hand and you blessed others in God's name with your right hand. So, to incline your heart to the right is to say, I am going to lean into all of that. I am going to lean into goodness and justice and protection and blessing. But ask yourself, which worldview will help you do that? A worldview that cannot tell you what goodness and right and wrong and justice are? A world that cannot tell you who should be protected and why? Such a worldview can hardly help you do that, can it? But Christianity can, because it is the only thing that can tell you what God's right hand looks like. Because the son of his right hand became a man. And Jesus was the only truly wise man who never stumbled in folly. And if the preacher tells us that the fool doesn't know the way to the city, Jesus did. In fact, the gospel writers tell us he set his face to go to Jerusalem, knowing that going there would cost him his life because his leadership was the exact opposite of self-indulgent. Because it was there at the cross 
that he bore all of our folly upon himself. And as he did, he opened the way for us to the city, to our ultimate home. And knowing that tells you, your life is heading somewhere. There is a destination. You know, Jesus told a parable about two builders, didn't he? One wise, one foolish. The wise man built his house on rock, the foolish one on sand. But both were hit by a storm and only one house survived. Matthew 7 verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Hey, you may still be hit by a storm and you will certainly face a life that on the surface seems a thing of time and chance. But build your life on Christ and his word. Find in him your significance, your value, your security, regardless of how popular or unpopular that might be at the moment. And you will come safely through to the other side. But you have got to tilt your heart towards him and his word. Paul wrote, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. You know, when you don't know the way somewhere, the wise person, your wife perhaps, if you've got one, will stop and ask directions. But the fool just blunders on and gets more and more lost. So Jesus says, build your life on me and my word and you won't get lost. You will know purpose and direction. You will know the way to the city. Paul says, set your mind on him. Set your mind on Christ. See above the sun and incline your heart to where he is sat at the right hand of God the Father. And you will know that you are not at the mercy of time and chance. So you will be able to face those unpredictable events of life with peace and with poise, because you know he is holding you in his hand. Incline your heart to Christ and it will make the temptations to foolish decisions or stupid comments less and less attractive. And instead, you will speak grace to others. Why? Because you know he has spoken grace over you. And you will model your leadership on his and you will give yourself for others, not take from them. And as you do, you will be a part of stemming the tide of decay, not a part of pulling the roof down.